Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Welcome everyone to the latest episode of 100 Days and Beyond, the, the, uh, the, the, the podcast for the unsung heroes of the merger and acquisition journey, especially around the integration side of, of post-acquisition work. Once entities have been acquired, uh, there's generally a, a, a team of individuals that are dedicated to make sure that the uh, synergy capture and the and the value creation comes to fruition that the corp dev or the the initial m a team have have uh, have thought through and have planned for but don't necessarily have all the answers going into it so often the the um the the uh, integration team gets thrown into the deep end. Uh, sometimes they get the privilege of working with uh, the the, the M and A team pre deal, uh, and we're going to talk today to Ashley Heitch, who is a specialist in a bunch of things. So I'm going to just go through your um, through your CV briefly, Ashley, and then I'm going to introduce you to everyone. Basically, Ashley. Uh, is accomplishing corporate development, finance, M&A, strategy professional with, the, with leadership uh, experience and expertise in managing the M&A process, which is already a big thing, deal negotiation, analysis, valuations, which is a big topic, all the way through to due diligence, integration, in, uh, execution, and value creation for companies, both organically and inorganically. And I want, I'm going to touch on one or two of those things as we go through our podcast today. An innovative and energetic leader. And uh, having had a few conversations with Ashley already, um, I can definitely see the energy uh, coming across. And, and I think that's necessary attribute to be a successful um, integration professional. Um, Financial acumen, persistence, strategic insight, interpersonal communication skills, all things that are attributes that are key for success. And then deep service, uh, financial services ex uh, experience with fintechs and banks. I mean, those, that's, those are two really uh, interesting areas. Um, you list your top skills, Ashley, as corporate development and strategy, M&A due diligence, and financial planning analysis. And, and a lot of that stuff comes into uh, into play when we're dealing with especially with integration work ashley welcome to the show thank you so much dudley uh great to be here and um glad we're able to figure out the time zone difference <laughs> yeah we did <laughs> ashley thank you and uh yeah thank you for joining i just want to sort of kick start the process and 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 let, let's just let's just have a chat about your your entry into this space. Um, many of us don't necessarily sit in, 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 at school dreaming one day of becoming M&A or integration experts and so on. Um, where, did, where did it all start? How did you get into the space? And, and, and tell us a bit about your experience around that. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I would say I probably, uh, during my graduate school, um, which I went to Thunderbird, which is an international MBA uh, program, um, the main campus in Arizona. Um, but I, I took some capstone courses there that were more focused on finance and strategy and, and looked to get into a kind of a financial management development program coming out of graduate school. Um, I was able to do that with uh, moving to Silicon Valley and working with applied materials at the time. And that was really my first foray into um, getting into corporate development and M&A. Um, and that, that particular role, you know, I really kind of cut my teeth on, on understanding the, the due diligence process more so on the front end of, of identifying acquisition candidates and then performing all of the associated financial diligence with um, performing equity investments or or acquisitions um, of companies. We we did have some divestitures as well, but I was fortunate to be with a, a company on an internal team that was quite robust. And, you know, I would say we very much operated kind of as though we were a middle market investment bank, um, so to speak. And with our amount of cash on the balance sheet and how um, acquisitive we were able to be during those years. That's uh, so, so you, you, you started relatively soon in your career. Um, I just want to, I want to touch on the, on, on a bit of the due diligence side of things because due diligence seems to have a different um, uh, let's say a different slant or a different uh, intent at different stages of different of deals. Um, if you're looking just at pre-deal, post-deal types of uh, due diligence, um, maybe just to expand a bit on that, because I think being, being a financial person, you know, you would go in, I would imagine would be your, your natural space to work in would be fine finance and financial due diligence uh, as well as I imagine all the other aspects around strategy and so on. And then post, post deal, just give us a bit of a, a flavor of the difference between pre and post deal due diligence. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that, you know, the experience I shared there, you know, earlier in my career was um, with me being more on the, on the earlier side of deal making, you know, the due diligence um, uh, th those those roles were you know a bit more focused on you know financial diligence where I was part of a team I would have you know colleagues that were responsible for for the technical aspect uh, or, or the product aspect the human capital you know HR um, communication aspect so I was a piece uh, of a larger team in those regards I think uh, later on in my career, um, where I've you know been able to have more uh, leadership role is in that integration planning where I have always seen uh, successful integrations play out where an integration um, expert or an integration um, executive is able to take part as part of that due diligence effort uh, before the deal is consummated so you can help to form the investment thesis. Uh, I think having having a voice and an understanding for where you know the leadership uh, sees uh, value, opportunity, uh, synergy creation, um, 
is really critical um, to have a seat at that due diligence table so that when you when you come to day one, you're not starting at, at ground zero to develop, you know, the success measures for, for an integration. So that's that's something I've, I've learned over the years is, you know, being able to advocate for having a seat at that due diligence table where the integration plan can begin to take shape um, and creating a, a robust, you know, well thought out measured plan over the life of an integration. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's, that's, a, that's a really good answer. Um, I, I, I just, if we look at the planning, I mean, if you're thinking, um, due diligence, and we're thinking about sort of rolling out a plan. You get multiple work streams, um, and so on that 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 happen. But if we if we sort of zoom out a bit and we say, okay, let's look at the 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 the, the sectors that you've been involved in in in, in your career, um, and if you go through your career, because I mean, our starting question is, how did you get into this, and then how did that develop? Because fintech as we know it today has changed significantly in a year, two years, five years, 10 years, banks, banking and financial institutions have had to make significant shifts as well. Um, maybe just paints a bit of a picture of how you've seen that change from when you first entered and, and, and where it is today. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I have had, you know, more, uh, some of my more recent experience with fintechs, but um, to your point, I also um, have had, you know, quite a bit of integration experience at, at much larger um, institutions and banks. Um, you know, I, you know, a lot of the, the principles at play, um, regardless of the size of the company are, are, are quite similar, um, I think. Um, you know, whether it's a bank or a fintech, I, I oftentimes and, and I have put into place the same uh, type, you know, methods, you know, with a, you know, a post-merger integration, you know, playbook of sorts where, you know, you do set up, uh, you know, a steering committee and integration management office with all the, you know, work streams below that. Um, you set up the, the proper meeting cadence. Um, so I haven't, you know, really varied too much from that. I will say uh, in, in some of my experience with smaller companies, um, you know, some, some dot-com, some FinTech uh, integrations, I, I will see sometimes there, uh, you know, it does take a bit more uh, to, to be deliberate about engaging and getting involved on the, on the due diligence side of, of an integration uh, before the deal is consummated. Um, I think there is oftentimes, sometimes market, dynam market dynamics and in, in mergers and acquisitions in general um, can oftentimes dictate when an opportunity is, is worth going for. And sometimes leadership, uh, you know, executive management has to take action quickly uh, just based on, you know, sometimes it's a bidding exercise. There's competition in the market. Um, so for an integration expert uh, or someone tasked with performing integration activities, um, sometimes it's it's a it's a luxury to have um, time to plan out an integration. In some cases, now in, uh, in some larger industrial companies where I've done integrations, there was one in particular. It was in the defense industry, 
I had um, the this this particular acquisition would have doubled the size of the of the business unit I was in. The business unit was about a billion dollar business unit. The acquisition target would have been approximately eight hundred million. And there was not that much competition in this space. So we actually took six months of time to fully plan out the integration. And we knew everything from communications well before day one. We knew the facility rationalization plan. We knew the synergy efficiencies were, we were going to look to capture. Um, so again, that's that's an example of a more of an industrial, whereas FinTechs I um, have seen they're typically don't have that uh, type of lead time to plan uh, integration activities. And I think a sound process is one that can, can help uh, a management team and leader um, be successful. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I want to, I want to ask a little bit about the human dynamics and then about the valuation, some of the valuation principles pre and post to see that you're not overpaying for a business, but um let let's just look at that that sort of that, that planning uh, concepts of the human dynamics side. If you if you have enough time, as your let's let's call it the more industrial example, um, how do you deal with the dynamic around? You know what the rationalization plan is going to be. How do you keep the teams motivated, knowing? that there's going to be some significant changes coming, you've got enough time to plan. And, and many people will probably realize that they have got a shorter and shorter runway in terms of their jobs, careers, and so on. Do you think there's a benefit in that? Uh, does it give these, these people that might not be there after the rationalization has been completed, that they now have a bit of extra time and space to go and look for an alternative uh, and it helps them cope with the change? I mean, I, I just tell me a little bit about the human dynamic. I mean, if you can look yeah, into no, people's that's a, that's souls. A, that's a really good question. Um, you know, again, I think it's somewhat unique to have that much time to plan mm. for integration and get pretty heavily involved with, you know, this example that I was using the uh, industrial, you know, in the defense and aerospace business. Um, you know, I would say that the human dynamic, one way that we help to, to manage that internally, well, first of all, we were we were the acquirer. We were going to be buying, you know, the other entity. So we certainly kept any of the planning in, internal only. Um, so there was no external um, interaction with with the target. Um, I would say we we were selective in who we chose to be our partners across the different functions. You know, some of the key functions, as you might expect, were were finance, marketing, sales. Um, and in HR or human capital, um, HR was probably the you know, the partner where there was a bit uh, of concern around the change management that was going to be coming. Um, I think for them to understand, you know, what what was going to be done, how the culture might change, but giving them an, a voice as part of the planning exercise, I think, gave them some level of confidence that. You know, again, because we, the, we were the acquirer, I do not believe that there was a sense of, of fear that, that their jobs, uh, their functions were going to be significantly impacted. Um, and we, we certainly did not permeate 
very low into the organization as part of our integration planning. We would work with, you know, very senior level executives. So we were able to keep the, the knowledge, you know, there was, um, you know, it was kind of under understood that this was confidential in nature and they were part of a team uh, to assess uh, and perform the integration diligence for, for this particular target. And then in the polar opposite would be a, a rapid um, fintech-based uh, acquisition where, <laughs> where the deal gets announced and, and then you arrive as, as day one. But I think you've, you've managed uh, during your career, if I'm not mistaken, you've been more on, on, on the acquisition team driving uh, all the way from the beginning of an acquisition process more so than just being part of an integration team. Just give me a bit of a dynamic um, around that as in a more rapidly moving integration where now you're dealing with people that yesterday had no idea and today it's, it's a surprise. And the, as the panic sets in, it's the deer in the headlights, um, almost syndrome, if you like. So give me, just give me a bit of your experience around that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I do have an experience where I, I I started with a you know an earlier stage company, um, and it was it was really only a few weeks before uh, the company announced an acquisition. Um, so I was literally um, had been an employee for a few weeks before there was an acquisition. So, um, but I also was responsible for leading the integration effort. So that that was a case where. Um, Again, it, it was in the fintech space and the soft, you know, it was a software as a service company um, taking uh, the company international for the first time. Um, this was a, uh, an interesting acquisition in that it, it was not going to result in, it was a much smaller company that we were acquiring. It was not going to impact um, the personnel. There was not going to be any true synergy capture from um, employee rationalization. So that was, in, in one sense, that was that was good that there was not going to be that type of, um, you know, deer in the headlights, as you put it, that type of um, impact. Um, this was, but it, it doesn't mean that there certainly um, needed to be um, adequate communications, um, really, you know, there, there was some pre-acquisition communication um, you know, making sure that we had the right foundation building for future communications and that we were clear of who the audience was, whether it was senior management, uh, the employees of the acquired entity. You know, we were, uh, we were really um, conscious to make sure that we had regular touch points with the employee base, um, if not weekly, certainly biweekly, with topics that we brought to the table that we we were able to, to get those topics um, through the management team that we acquired and, you know, things that you would hear at the water cooler that certainly wouldn't, would normally not bubble up into a broader team meeting. But we tried to do just that, to give the employee base the, the comfort of what was going to be happening and when it was going to be happening um, to the extent we could, we could convey, you know, what was going to be changing. We were, transparent in those activities. And we felt that that gave those team members comfort um, around what their roles and responsibilities were going to be, what some of the non-negotiable items were going to be in the new structure. Um, 
and then being able to convey the business objectives. So they were clear how their products were going to be uh, assimilated into the broader organization going forward. Because there's also different levels of integration. I mean, sometimes you swallow the entire entity, you swallow them up entirely. And other times it's more, you can, you leave them alone to a greater extent and you only integrate smaller elements of it. I want to just, I want to go into the being, you being a financial guy, um, I want to go into some of the, the, the valuations, um, uh, pre and post deal. So, so it, it's, uh, when you're doing valuations um, of an entity, I mean, one of the big drivers is not to overpay for a business and to pay at least fair value um, for the exiting shareholders or wherever you're buying from. Um, and at the same time, uh, trying to pay as little as possible, but not, you know, not overpaying, but having a decent enough balance, but having uh, the, the mindset of, whatever I'm paying for this business at the end of it, I need to end up with more at the end of the integration process or at the end of, by the time I need to exit. So have you seen big differences between pre uh, deal, uh, pre, pre deal and post deal valuations uh, where it's gone wrong and, and where it's gone right. And, and, and maybe just sort of, you know, so there's a lot of assumptions that get, get made pre deal. Right. Um, yeah, no, there. That that's a, a, a great question. I think you know any any acquirer, I I believe, would say that they would prefer uh, any acquisition to be accretive to their bottom line. Um, you know, if it's a public company, you would prefer the you know the earnings per share to rise. Um, that you see a, an accretion event. Um, that that doesn't always turn out to be the case. I think smaller companies, private companies, um, sometimes have a more difficult time to, to prove that out. Um, there are also, th this puts a lot of the importance of, in my mind, why integrations need to be clear, uh, integration managers of, of setting the strategic factors, the strategic dr drivers of why the acquisition was pursued you know, creating, uh, you know, 100 day goals and beyond um, to be able to meet the integration objectives. Some of those will be sales oriented. Some might be, you know, reducing, you know, receivables by 10% in 100, 100 days. Um, but being clear to understand what the execution risk areas are, um, because the, the more, the more diligence you have to identify those success criteria and the key performance indicators early on, I think gives any management team the ability to look back and, and quantify in, you know, one month, two month, you know, quarterly increments. And there are a lot of, you know, professional firms that come in, can come in and assist on this as well, but put in the metrics to, to be able to prove over time that, the acquisition was a success and whatever those metrics are that you can, you can point to them specifically measure them. Um, and then if you need to adjust course, then that, that may also be needed. Um, yeah. So I think that that is helpful. Um, yeah. Cause they're, they're, they're often a, bun uh, a bunch of levers that you could, you could shift and move 
in terms of your key performance indicators. If you if you reduce the collection days, for instance, on your on your debtors on uh, on your accounts receivable, and you manage to to shift some creditor days or accounts payable, um, you know, just shifting a few levers, you could potentially without much difficulty add a bit of value. However, sometimes there are unintended consequences. In, so you're moving these levers, having a theoretical um, or a, let's call it a theoretically logical outcome, and then something, something goes wrong because now you've upset the customers or you've done something from a creditor uh, or a accounts payable arrangement, and you've now got a knock-on effect. Now, all of a sudden, the service delivery maybe is impacted. Your, your finance has been improved, but the delivery, let's say, from the, from the suppliers, of, uh, because now there's, a, there's different owners or whatever it is. Um, just tell us a little bit, if you've got any experience around that, uh, some unintended consequences, pulling those levers, and then something out of the ordinary happens? Um, yeah, I think, you know, sometimes uh, there, there's one, you know, integration that comes to mind. Um, it, it was one where, you know, the market dynamics uh, presented a situation where uh, the, the leadership team had to move probably a bit quicker than uh, as an integration, as the responsible party for the integration um, would have would have liked to have some additional time uh, to perform some of the diligence activities um, to set up a you know a clean team or a clean room <clears throat> where you have the the appropriate leaders help to assess the the target operating model um, and the target operating model again ideally is something that can can be debated um, uh, among leadership uh, to know how it is you want to run the business. Um, sometimes there are significant technology implications to the products that are uh, going to be part of the go forward plan. Um, yeah, one, one, one integration in, in particular is one where, you know, as an international entity that we acquired, uh, a US company, we being the US company acquired a European entity um, and we, the, the, the top product for both companies happened to be uh, a product that the acquired entity had. Um, what we did not have the benefit of time to fully understand was kind of the go-to-market strategy for, you know, come day one, day 30, day 100, exactly being able to um, communicate with uh, conviction on, on how the two products were going to play together on a global scale. Um, that's one that um, we, we certainly, and as an integration manager, there's a need to um, get, you know, get the details and define that target operating model. Um, and this is one where, you know, we had to do, you know, kind of an inside out analysis of the acquired entities, um, you know, analytics, you know, leveraging, you know, the existing customer and product, uh, product data that supplemented, um, you know, the usage trends, what drove the volume, what drove the adoption rates of that, of that product, 
um, understanding what functionality was being added, what functionality was being dropped, what customer segments, what profiles emerged from that type of analysis. Again, that's something that, um, again, sometimes market dynamics um, uh, dictate that, but uh, that, that's something that, you know, in, in retrospect, I think um, would have liked to have had more, more time on the front end to be part of that due diligence effort. Because time is often um, something that's um, superficially uh, selected, as in we need to get this done by X date, as opposed right. to this is what's realistically important to time that's required in order to make sure this thing comes to fruition. So um, I want to I want to touch on that because I think it goes into the what I mentioned earlier is out of your um, out of your profile. And we talk, you talk about value creation for companies, both organically and inorganically. Maybe you want to expand a little bit about that. What do you mean by, by those, two, those two terms? Sure. So on, on the organic side, um, you know, I'll, I'll use an example. At, uh, a large financial services company, a large bank that I have been with recently. Um, and for anyone looking at my profile, they can probably guess who that is, but organic growth, what, what I mean by that is uh, to be able to identify strategic growth areas for the existing business, you know, with your existing leadership, your exist, existing sales staff, technology operations platform. Um, the, the example that I would share is uh, a recent initiative that I led to create a, a new internal line of business that was partnering across, it happened to be partnering across the commercial banking side of our, our bank and the corporate and investment banking side. And we really needed both parties to come together for, it was really a, an internal joint venture um, for lack of a better term, where our corporate investment banking team had underwriting capability. They had the risk profile for the particular product that the commercial bank had never had. And the commercial bank, not that we may not have been able to get there at some point in time, but speed to market was important in this internal organic initiative. And we were able to get the senior most leadership to to concur that in order to accelerate the, the launch, the soft launch of this particular uh, growth initiative, again, this was organic. We did not have to bring in external hires into the organization. It was truly working within our, our existing teams to craft a new business plan, a new strategy, um, and then being able to execute on it. And that's what I mean by, by organic as opposed to inorganic, um, you know, almost by definition, you need to, you know, the type of deal or acquisition or investment that a company is looking at, you know, understanding what, what your desire is, you know, is it, are you going for scale? Are you going for scope? Um, sometimes the scope might enable an acquirer an inorganic activity to enter a new market, a new product line or channel, um, you know, by targeting a, a related but a distinct business um, to acquire. Um, so those are some examples there, Dudley. 
No, great, 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 great example. So, um, and I, I'm, I'm quite liking the, 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 the difference or the differentiating uh, between even an internal project being something that you consider it could be organic, as opposed to, you know, one, one would think organic is take your existing sales products, et cetera, territories, and just sell more or, or increase prices or just do something you yeah. know, that, that you can just pull a few levers where, where, you know, inorganic starts to become a little bit more difficult because now it's started to put pieces of a puzzle together and add in ad additional complexities that you didn't have in, in the past. And you've got a new entity to make sure that, that it can happen. So I'm, I'm quite liking that. I want to, I want to just go back to, back to valuation and, and you being a, a finance um, guy, um, I want to maybe just sort of touch on sort of valuation principles. Do you, do you have a, um, uh, let's call it a favorite set of tools? Do you, have, you, have you put together, you know, in your, in your career, put together your go-to, um, let's call it your go-to methodologies, your go-to um, techniques that work, that just seem to work for you? Um, and this is specific to valuation, is that right? Valuations and then broaden out maybe in terms of your integrations and, and how you actually make those things come to fruition. Got it. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in, in full transparency, I think in the, the more recent part of my career, I would kind of call it the last 10 years, I um, have not been doing as much of that financial diligence valuation work. But, you know, I would say, you know, just about, five, seven years ago, I was working for a firm where I happened to be familiar with some tools. Um, you know, Capital IQ is a pretty well-known software platform. I had used that in investment banking. Um, there's, there are many platforms out there, but, um, you know, I was able to quickly drill into a specific um, segment by looking up NAICS codes and to identify a segment that the company I was with at the time uh, to quickly go in and look at what were precedent transaction, um, you know, transaction volumes as well as valuations, you know, more based on a, you know, a multiple of EBITDA, a multiple of revenue. Uh, the business I was with was, it was a consulting business. Um, and those were uh, really good metrics. Uh, another resource, is GF data resources, which um, they, they are still around. And GF data resources takes, uh, they have private equity groups primarily providing deal transaction identifiers, um, but they do not convey the specific company names. It's all by NAICS code, you know, the industry code classification. But that is also a very good tool that I have seen. Um, you know, I've been been able to predict very close what um, some external acquirers did acquire that company for. You know, based on a multiple of EBITDA for this particular consulting business. Um, and for integrations, um, you know, there just over the years, I've uh, you know certainly picked up. You know, you can probably go find good, really good articles in Harvard Business Review. Um, you know, GE Capital is one company, or GE in particular, um, is 
was probably on the, the front end of really defining the need for integration, um, not being considered a, you know, a discrete phase of a deal. You know, it's not, integration is not something that begins when the docs are signed, you know, rather it's a process beginning with due diligence. Um, and I think GE, and there is a lot of literature on their success of being able to stand up, manage and execute um, integrations. Those are some of the materials that, you know, I've, I've used over the years to help formulate my, uh, my approaches. Um, also with a being in consulting as well, um, consulting firms, uh, you know, often are, you know, privy to some of the more current methodologies and approaches. And I've been, been able to integrate those, um, no pun intended into my, into my repertoire. Uh, so with, with the, with the, um, a consulting um, background, and also, you know, with your with your varying uh, experience and so on, um, different approaches, different people, different approaches, and 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 some people see cons consultants as sort of flying in and flying out, you know, as opposed to when you're working with integrations and and so on, you often become part of the some of the DNA at least for a period of time because most integrations that are not that quick and, and, and your, your, your relationship making ability is, 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 is tapped in, I think a lot higher or required a lot more in, in the people side of things, as opposed to consulting, which is more about applying methodologies and getting a result for a specific task. Give me your view on that. Is that, am I, am I going down the right route in terms Absolutely. of that sort of analysis? No, that's, that's an excellent point. It's one that, um, you know, because I've been fortunate to have had the consulting experience, but also a number of um, experiences sitting on the corporate side of the table where, you know, I'm, I'm either leading the integration strategy and approach uh, for the company or, you know, earlier in my career, I was part of a team um, leading the integration. That, that is a, you know, a distinct, difference. Um, being internal, um, well, first of all, you, you own it. Um, you, you not only may have to take what a consulting firm might bring to the extent that you internally, you, you have outsourced some, some of the integration capability. Let's just hypothetically say that's the case. They may be bringing in some of the, um, you know, credentials, some of the some of the methodologies approaches to be deployed, but on the internal side, um, ultimately you, that person, that team is going to own the outcome. Um, and it is incumbent upon uh, that internal executive or team to establish and create adequate relationships, um, healthy relationships, I would say across the organization and across the acquired entity uh, one of the things that uh, you know I've I've seen to be successful is making sure that decision making and how decisions will happen and, and occur and the frequency of decision making, making sure that that's clear um, of how decisions are brought up for discussion, um, you know how they are discussed and then how quickly they can be decided, um, because again that that presents execution risk. 
I think the ability to have, you know, one-on-ones, but have uh, work stream participation from both the acquirer and the acquired entity on, you know, have representatives from both sides um, helps to increase communications, increases confidence and collaboration uh, across the team. So that's, that's one distinction that I completely agree with by being internal as opposed to, you know, just an external consultant. So, um, <coughs> sorry. So um, if, 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 if I had to, if I had to ask you, um, uh, you know, this is not a big community. There's integration and, and M&A has got, um, you know, I think you mentioned it's not necessarily just seen as a discrete process for some entities, but some entities put a lot more emphasis at the M&A, sort of the deal-making portion of it, uh, and less so in the integration side. Um I think over the years, uh, and and having had a decent conversation with you, I think you you you're of, um, and maybe you just have to confirm this, is that integration and M and A and and that whole process is is almost an, a single process that needs to be taken into account where you are leading from the beginning, from even the intention of doing an acquisition or running an an acquire an, an acquisition process. Thinking about the strategy, because part of your part of your profile talks about strategic and creating a strategic plans and, and executing on them all the way through to seeing uh, right down to each one of the work streams completed. Um, so it's a very long journey that the, uh, this podcast is specifically around the the integration portion of it. If I had to if I had to ask. Um, you know, you 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 you've got the privilege of having seen the entire journey, and 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 if I had to bring that in, and I say, um, Ashley, can you, um, as a practitioner of of all these different aspects, can you say what differentiates, what makes an individual good at what this is, especially integration? What are the key attributes of a good integration practitioner? Um, as opposed to necessary, not just a deal maker or not just a finance person or a, a sales or marketing or any of the other um, operations types of work. What, what, what do you think? I mean, what, what, what's your view on that, having experienced this broad ca- category? Yeah, uh, I, I think, and, you know, whoever might be tasked for any of your listeners for integration responsibilities, um, whether it's a, a well-formed uh, function within an organization or one that's just being put together and, you know, it's just in its, in its nascent stages of, of being created. I think finding um, executives, leaders that have, um, have built confidence um, and trust um, and someone that can really become a trusted advisor internally across constituents, across stakeholders. Um, I I feel it needs to be somebody that really understands change management and and knowing how to work across functions. You know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a a good integration leader. I've I've seen them be really good coming out of the 
HR human capital organization. I've seen really strong leaders coming, you know, more from a finance perspective or a product perspective. I think a general um, sense of, you know, or, or strong business acumen across the, the key functions of an organization is helpful. But again, you know, serving as that, um, that change champion, understanding there is going to be change impact, identifying, you know, you know, through, an, as an example, like a change impact assessment across all the different functions and stakeholders and clarifying, you know, where are their risks? Um, you know, where, where are their, you know, quick wins, some, mm. some items and integrations, someone that has the ability to categorize, you know, quick wins from those that are going to have a longer, longer time frame against them and being deliberate in planning across the functions mm. and setting targets. Um, those are skills that I think a integration executive or leader being brought into such a function, um, you know, really need to have that top of mind to be successful. Uh, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a decent, that's a decent list. And it's, it's quite a broad set of requirements. I, I want to put you on the spot a little and, and, and maybe just sort of hone in or zone in on, onto, onto you personally and, and, Actually, what, what would you say differentiates you as a practitioner as opposed to other people out there that that also have a similar set of skills? Can, can you do you have you worked out what what's what's your magic? What do you bring? What's your value proposition to an organization? Um, I I think one of the the assets I think I bring is just my my breadth of experience at this point. Um, you know, starting earlier in my career, more on the financial diligence side of the equation. So mm -hmm. understanding the deal economics um, has been, you know, helpful for me being able to interact, you know, in the latter stages of my career at this point, um, understanding the, the, the impacts that, you know, bringing two organizations together has on, on all functions and, and all team members. Um, I think, you know, building again, the, the, the confidence and trust with your, your stakeholders, knowing that they're going to be heard, um, that their, their pain points are, are going to be addressed in some form or fashion, uh, doesn't mean they're always going to have to be solved and, you know, by day 30 or day 60, but I think uh, my ability to be transparent and, and honest with, with partners is one that, um, you know, comes, you know, just through experience and over time building that, that trust um, and following, a, following an approach and staying true to uh, the approach, uh, the plan is, is one that I also feel like helps to, you know, support uh, my ability to be successful and, and live through the integration continuum because it is um, it doesn't end at a hundred days. Um, I, I've seen them last for for years in some cases. Mm -hmm. So um, I think just knowing that uh, you know I'm somebody fully vested and seeing seeing it through to the end um, comes with great value. No, that's Brett. That's fantastic. That's that's wonderful. Actually, just then then sort of in terms of the pressures of this type of um, 
this is not something that's like a walk, a walk in the park, as we call it, or a, a day out on the beach. This is this is proper hard, hard work. And and sometimes travel the the hours. I know with the pandemic things have changed slightly, but you know, now we're staring at screens for longer hours. We are, you know, life's changed, but but the, the hours are still there. The pressure to to bring results is still very much uh, present. And and how do you balance your work life? Um, keep yourself at least in good shape or whatever that is, or, or good health keep family ties and relationships in place and, and just keep sort of just your sanity and your, your mental sure. health. Give us, yeah, give us I, your, your secret. <laughs> I don't know that it's a secret, um, but I, I, I have, uh, well, my wife and my, I have two kids that are teenagers. So I think uh, the lively um, life of a teenager probably helps to keep me, me active and mm. in current um, uh, on, on items in the world that, uh, you know, as busy as sometimes you do get with, uh, M&A and integration. Um, you know, I've, I find a lot of comfort in, you know, spending time with, with my wife and my kids. Um, I were quite active, I would say, you know, outdoors and in sports. And I, I think I maintain a lot of my sanity and, and hopefully a sense of calm by, by, you know, making sure I do my part to, you know, take care of my health. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I see that through um, some sort of aerobic activity or, you know, working out of, of some sort. Um, I like to say I can do it most days of the week. That doesn't always happen, but it really helps me to keep my, my mind uh, clear and, and refreshed for, uh, for the work and, and the task at hand. And I would say to the, for those that have to travel as some of these activities, I think, you know, you may be in a, in a hotel um, quite often, I think, you know, trying to incorporate maintaining some of that rhythm of, mm. uh, you know, if it's going out for a walk or just getting some free time uh, to take care of yourself, I think really helps um, in the long run. Yeah, that's one of our. So, I mean, there, there is there's definitely an element of you can you can definitely be more productive by actually stepping away sometimes and and just just taking that breather, just clearing the head and and making sure that that that, that you get the blood flowing. Uh, and then family is very very important, uh, and especially I mean these days I think for me I see a bigger shift towards family becoming more important uh you know i think there was a time when it be, was less maybe important than what it is today and and i see closer ties and bonds um maybe i could we're getting close to the end of the of the of the episode and i want to maybe just sort of um ask you actually are there, are there any sort of golden nuggets some some takeaways that you could share some words of wisdom um before we close off um, you know, I, I, I would say we, we've touched on it some, um, but, you know, I think that the communication strategy, this is just one area where I have seen, you know, some integration efforts fall short. Um, and I've always been keen to have a communications partner, you know, if it, some, depending on the size of the company, it can be uh, within a marketing organization, or it may be a dedicated communications function. But the, 
the imperative here is that the communication strategy is reliable, um, is one that you can get the information out early and often. Um, and they're all types of communication that are so critical to um, mergers and acquisitions and integrations. It's, it's that communication pre-acquisition that might simply be internal communications. And then there's you know, foundation building with your uh, respective audiences. Mm. And then external communications, um, making sure that you have a, a rapid uh, integration timeline um, and, and being able to assimilate all of the, the communications together. Again, mm. depending on the size, complexity of an integration, without a, a strong communications partner. Um, that's just one, one morsel of information that I have seen work out well and then sometimes not so well. Um, so I, I'm someone keen to try to, to find that communications partner. Nice, that's, that's, that's a great way to end uh, in the episode. And, and Ashley, thank you very much. Ashley Heitch, uh, um, I wanna thank you for being open and, and, and sharing your experiences and so on uh, today. And, and I'm hoping that uh, you've, there are a few people out there that can feel inspired, but not only that, just feel comforted that um, there are, there are ex experts out there and, and there are people out there that have got the broad and deep uh, experience that, 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 that you have. Um, if, if people want to get hold of you, Ashley, uh, how would they do that? What's the best place to get in touch? Um, probably through, through LinkedIn. Um, and I, uh, someone could send me an invite and reference this episode if you would like, or, mm. you know, Dudley's platform. Um, LinkedIn is probably the best way. And then, you know, you can send me a LinkedIn message. And uh, once we're connected, then, you know, my contact details would be there on LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, and uh, and we'll make sure that those uh, your your details are on the on the episode um, explainer or the description. Um, and that uh, is the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ashley. Great. Thank, thank you, Dudley. Thank you, and thank you. Uh, and to the audience, just thank you very much for for joining us for another episode of 100 Days and Beyond. Um, for me, it's the unsung heroes, and Ashley is one of them. Uh, the guys that make stuff happen in, behind the scenes uh, yet are humble and, and, uh, and open enough to, to, to give back to the community and, and, and to provide that sense of, um, of knowing that, that, that there is life after and life before <laughs> and life during um, an integration and even a whole m a process. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you very much. Dial in for the next one. And uh, and uh, all the best uh, for your endeavors in M&A and, and especially on the integration side. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Hi, everybody. This is Dudley again. And if you need help with a future or existing post-merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no-obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website skillfulpursuit.com.